Hi, I'm Holly, and I'd like to welcome you to The Second Location, a true crime podcast that is conducting what I think is the most extensive amateur-led exploration of the trial and conviction of Tommy Ziegler ever. This episode, we are going to focus on Tommy's trial and the evidence presented by the prosecution. The state opened its case with a virtual assload of witnesses that all talked about the evidence in procedural and chain of custody terms. While the evidence itself was never explained in any depth, the parade of witnesses described taking photographs, retrieving slugs, collecting fingerprints, and the retrieval and processing of blood evidence. There was a lot of testimony about chain of custody and who handled what was explained in great detail. This testimony was extensive. It was a lot of witnesses and it took a good bit of time. And well, it really seemed to give the jury the impression that the state had a lot of evidence against Tommy. But in reality, little to none of this evidence implicated Tommy in the murders. But the sheer volume of witnesses testifying to the collection of evidence, it potentially gave it weight in the jury's eyes, weight that the evidence really didn't merit. Personally, I wonder if some of this could have been stipulated, you know, between the prosecution and the defense so that the testimony wouldn't have been needed. Now, I'm not sure if this would actually have been a good idea because it could have raised issues if the defense wanted to challenge how the crime scene was processed, but it's just an idea because I want to emphasize the prosecution was explaining every piece of evidence and who all handled it. And seriously, this isn't always done. It kind of shows what little evidence they actually have. Of the trial transcript, about one third of it is this kind of testimony. I truly just do not believe that is normal. But the jury keeps hearing about this great volume of evidence. And I think it gets lost that very little of that evidence actually implicates Tommy in the murders. There was one officer, his name's um, Elton Evans, who was, to say his role, I would say he was in charge of the evidence and chain of custody. So he was in charge of sending evidence off for testing and accounting for the evidence, its whereabouts. Well, Evans testified a total of nine times. But all this back and forth with chain of custody does illuminate one issue about the evidence that always bothered me. And it's just too bad the defense didn't come up with this theory before or during the trial because on appeal, they have never been really given a chance to explore this issue. And suffice to say, it's about evidence planting. And I will get to it soon. One of the prosecution's early witnesses, after we get through these hours and hours of chain of custody and who touched what, was um, the nurse who first treated Tommy when he arrived at the hospital. She noted that she did not get any blood on her hands when she cut off Tommy's shirt. This is implying that Tommy's shirt, that the blood was dry. She said that Tommy was not in shock and that when Chief Thompson repeatedly asked Tommy who did this, Tommy mumbled, Charlie, Charlie. The medical examiner was up next and... He went over pretty graphic photographs of the victim's bodies that were emitted, you know, over the defense's objections. But, you know, the judge, he never sustains a defense objection, so why would he do this time? Now, on cross, the doctor noted that Charlie Mays was recently missing one tooth, an upper canine. The doctor testified about other teeth that Charlie was missing, but the doctor admitted that these teeth were all long gone, way before the murders. And the doctor stated that the only victim who had recently lost a tooth was Charlie Mays, who had lost a single tooth. That tooth was located near his body and identified. Now keep in mind that a second tooth was found along a wall in the furniture store's showroom. So two teeth were found at the crime scene. Today, that second unidentified tooth is missing. So we will never know, you know who else lost a tooth there at that, that store that night, but we know that the second tooth didn't belong to any of the victims and it didn't belong to Tommy. Based on that alone, I personally would have acquitted Tommy. Someone left that crime scene that night missing a tooth. Someone that hasn't been accounted for. Someone that is likely 
a murderer. Okay, now next up, Oakland Police Chief Robert Thompson testified that Tommy's shirt had both dry and damp blood on it. Now, this is very important because he uses the terms dry and damp blood. And that he said the blood around the exit wound was almost dry and that Tommy's wound was no longer actively bleeding. Now, it's important to note that Chief Thompson noted damp blood on Tommy's shirt when he testified because the state had always avoided turning over materials to defense. The defense eventually utilized Florida's, like the Florida version of the Freedom of Information Act. It's called the Sunshine Act, and it was passed into law in 1995. And almost two decades after the murders, the defense was given access to documents that had been hidden from them for years. You know, they used a public records request, and the defense was able to obtain a document created by Chief Thompson that was titled a prosecutive summary. Now, this document outlines Thompson's entire involvement in the investigation. And this document is now frequently referred to as the Barry Thompson Police Report because it was hidden from the defense for decades. In this report, Thompson describes how they arrived at the hospital at 923 and Thompson helped a nurse remove Tommy's shirt. And Thompson wrote in his report that he observed that Tommy's gunshot wound, both the entrance and the exit wound, were not bleeding and the wounds were surrounded by dried blood. But when Thompson testified, he used the word damp to describe Tommy's shirt, even though when he picked Tommy up and carried him over his shoulder to his squad car. Chief Thompson did not get blood on him on his own white shirt from Tommy or on his clothing, which implies to me that Tommy's shirt was not damp with blood or there would have been a blood transfer from Tommy's shirt to Chief Thompson's shirt. The importance of whether the shirt was damp or dry is that the state argued that Tommy had shot himself after he called for help at 918. But if his wound is dry and his shirt is dry, when he arrives at the hospital just five minutes later, it's obvious that Tommy had not just been shot five minutes ago. The wound had stopped bleeding and his bloody shirt had dried. This all could not happen within a span of five minutes. And this dried blood and the wound no longer bleeding well it all supports what tommy had said about that night that when he entered the rear of the store on christmas eve he was attacked and shot and he lost consciousness and after a while he woke up and that is when he called for help and it was during this time while he was unconscious that his wound stopped bleeding and that his shirt had time to dry and the state needs to abandon their theory that tommy called for help before he shot himself there is absolutely no evidence that supports this theory and there is direct evidence that contradicts it including the lack of a blood trail of tommy's blood from the phone to the front door the fact that tommy's wound had stopped bleeding his bloody shirt was dry when he arrived at the hospital just five minutes after calling for help this all goes to show that tommy hadn't just been shot five minutes before he got to the hospital. The state needs to just Lego the ego on the idea that Tommy shot himself after calling for help. It's a theory that has been disproven, but the state can't let it go because this idea that Tommy called for help and then shot himself, it's basically the foundation of their entire case. But it's also not true and completely unsupported by the facts. It's important to note that Chief Thompson testified that he didn't recall Charlie May's pants being pulled down when he first saw his body, and he thought that Perry Edwards' head had actually been turned in the other direction when he first came upon Perry Edwards' body. This is evidence that something had changed between when the first officers were at the scene and when pictures were taken. Something called either evidence tampering or crime scene contamination. It's one of the two, but you can't have the first officers on the scene saying that the position of victims' bodies has changed in the photographs that are being entered into evidence at a trial and not have an explanation for that because that should never occur. It's inexcusable. 
Thompson also testified that some of the light switches were already switched into the on position when he entered the store. This would support what Tommy had said that he tried turning on lights, but he thought that the power was out when he first entered the back room. And there's no reason why anyone else would have flipped those switches to the on position before the police arrived. Unless someone was entering the building that didn't know the power had been cut and were attempting to turn the lights on, just as Tommy had said that he did before he was attacked. Chief Thompson also outlined in his experience with Tommy in this buried report, the experience that he had with Tommy at the hospital, where he asked Tommy who did this. Chief Thompson recalled that Tommy said Charlie Mays, whereas the nurse just heard Tommy say Charlie twice. Now, initially, I thought this didn't make any difference. It didn't really matter. But when you keep going back and you keep reviewing these things I've had to do with this case, there's things that you notice that you dismissed before because I was so wrong. Because if Tommy had only answered Charlie when Chief Thompson asked him who did this, how the hell did Chief Thompson know that it was Charlie Mays in that store? There would be tons of Charlies in Winter Garden. Why assume that it was Charlie Mays? Because Chief Thompson leaves Tommy at the hospital and returns to the furniture store and informs the other officers that Charlie Mays is in the store and that he had attacked Tommy. How did Chief Thompson know that he was going to find Charlie Mays in that store if Tommy had only said Charlie when asked who did this? Perhaps Chief Thompson had been in the store earlier that night when the murders occurred. It makes some sense. Chief Thompson has brains. And someone in that band of murderers had to have smarts and know how to stage a crime scene. Someone had to be a quick thinker and be able to reframe the scene after Eunice and her parents walked into a trap that had been set for Tommy. Chief Thomas would realize that killing a co-conspirator would focus the investigation on the people found at the crime scene. That could have been the plan all along. Kill one of the killers. Make it look like it was just one guy. Try to pin it on Charlie. And if it falls on Tommy, then it falls on Tommy. At least you're taking the focus off yourself. The police won't be looking for other killers. The other killers are in the clear. And I just don't think Edward Williams could come up with something like that. Then Chief Thompson also testified that while at the hospital, Tommy spoke about Don Fickey's plant and Mama and Daddy's Christmas present in a sort of babbling manner. Then Chief Thompson, you know, he says he returns to the store and he leaves Tommy at the hospital for treatment. Now, the defense pointed out to Chief Thompson that in his deposition, he had said that Tommy mumbled about Don Fickey's plant and Mama and Daddy's um, Christmas present at the store. And then, quote, this is a quote of what um, Chief Thompson said at his deposition. Tommy mentioned, quote, several names that were unfamiliar to me. At the deposition, Chief Thompson admitted he didn't make any notes of the names because they weren't familiar to him. And he couldn't understand Tommy clearly as he was rambling incoherently and he just assumed Tommy was confused and he left. Tommy was right about Don Fickey's plant being at the store and his parents' presence were at the store. What if in that moment in the hospital, he was actually naming his attackers and not just Charlie? While he was being disposed, Chief Thompson was asked, Chief, did you get the impression that the people he named were back in the store also? And Chief Thompson replied, no, I got the impression that they may have been people involved. I just don't know who they were. At trial, Chief Thompson didn't remember making that statement, but he said that he may have. But it's important to note that Chief Thompson admits that he thought that Tommy was naming people involved in the attack, but he didn't write down the names. Who cares whether he recognized the names? Just write them down. Tommy could have died in surgery. The names would be lost forever. And the names are, because Tommy couldn't remember the names when he came to again, which might just be what Chief Thompson wanted. Because if he was involved with the murders that night, 
Those names would be the names of his co-conspirators. And if they are named, they could name him. A man that might be dying said the name of his attackers to a police officer. And the officer never wrote down the names. Can anyone be that truly incompetent? To me, the failure to write down those names seems purposeful. Next up on the witness stand was Dr. Gleason. Now he had treated Tommy in the hospital and he testified to Tommy's injuries. The gunshot wound on the right side of his abdomen, a contusion on the right side of his skull, the back of his head, abrasion on his left cheek, bruise over his left kneecap, an abrasion and bruising to his right leg, and pain in both of his index fingers. Dr. Gleason testified that the contusion on the back of Tommy's head was consistent with Tommy being hit on the back of the head. When the doctor was asked if he could shoot himself in the abdomen and be confident that he would not hit any vital organs, the doctor responded, not that I know of. <laughs> I mean, no one wants to do that, okay? Let's just all face it, especially with a 38. Because it was the prosecution's contention that Tommy had medical expertise from being a medic in the Army Reserve. But this is a very flawed theory because Tommy's vision is so poor that he could never actually do active duty military um, work. He could, he could, so he would never be front lines. He never was front lines. You know, he just wouldn't be able to do that. His vision was too poor. While he was a medic in the Army Reserve, he had no medical experience. His position was more of a clerical and supply side position. No, Tommy did not have some type of super medical knowledge where he could determine the exact position of all of his internal organs and line himself up to take a 38 to the abdomen without hitting anything vital. You know why Tommy couldn't do that? Because nobody can do that. And it's ridiculous to try to act like somebody could. Now, next up, for the prosecution was officer Jimmy Yon. But in my opinion, Jimmy Yon was a defense witness at heart. Officer Yon explained how Charlie May's van was parked. And keep in mind, the prosecution is arguing that Charlie was at the store that night after hours to pick up a 200 pound console TV. And the defense is arguing that Charlie was there after hours to rob the store. But anyway, Officer Yon describes Charlie's van as parked behind the furniture store in the parking lot for the hotel that's behind the furniture store. So he's not, Officer Young explains that Charlie Mays did not park in the furniture store's parking lot. He's parked in the hotel parking lot. Charlie had chosen this area, most likely because he was able to park behind a large trailer that was loaded with heavy equipment, like a tractor, that would have hidden uh, Charlie Mays' van from the Dillard Street traffic. Charlie Mays' van was parked where it could not be seen from the street. It looks like not being noticed that night was more important to Charlie than easy access to the store. Johan also described the tall chain link fence between Charlie Mays' van and the furniture store. He sure shit wasn't making it easy on himself to pick up that heavy ass TV. Because yeah, you just heard it. The state is saying Charlie was there to pick up a 200 pound console TV and he parked in the hotel parking lot where his van was hidden from view from the street. But because he wasn't parked in the furniture store parking lot, he also would have to climb a six foot tall chain link fence while carrying the TV to get to his van. Can we all just admit it? That man was not there to pick up a TV. Okay, now back to the testimony. Officer Yon was the second person in the store that night. Remember, he went in with Chief Thompson side by side. You know, after Tommy called for help and Thompson dropped um, Tommy off at the hospital. Now, Officer Yon testified that the picture and evidence of Charlie May's body with the linoleum crank on his arm and his pants pulled down was not accurate. Officer Yon testified that when he first encountered Charlie's dead body that night, he did not look like that. Yon testified that Charlie's pants were up when he first saw him and that the linoleum crank was not on his arm. Now keep in mind that Chief Thompson also testified that Charlie's pants were not pulled down when he first saw Charlie. So we got the first two police officers on the scene. 
the men that discovered Charlie May's body, and they're both saying Charlie's pants were up when they found him. That is huge. Who the hell pulled down this dead man's pants, and why? Another witness for the prosecution was Barbara Spencer Tinsley. Now, she was at her parents' home, and they lived near the furniture store that Christmas Eve. Barbara was waiting for her brother to arrive, and he was late, so she had her eye on the clock more than she would normally. And Barbara testified that at approximately 7.25, she heard what she thought were three to four firecrackers exploding, followed by six to seven additional explosions about 15 to 20 minutes later. Those explosions at 7.25 were likely units in her parents being attacked. The question is, what were those explosions 15 to 20 minutes later? Was that Tommy being shot at the store? If so, why so many shots? I mean, maybe Perry and Virginia weren't quite dead, so they had to be executed? This would also be when Charlie Mays was most likely shot, and additional shots could have been taken just to cause confusion at the crime scene, to make it harder for investigators to determine how events actually unfolded that night. And this would be when the clock on the wall was most likely shot. Okay, so the prosecution calls another witness, Barbara Woodward. So we got two Barbaras. She claimed that she saw a tall white man with a short haircut that's uh, crew cut style standing in the doorway of the furniture store as she pulled onto Dillard Street on Christmas Eve. And in all honesty, that does describe Tommy. He is a tall white man and he does have a crew cut hairstyle. Now on the witness stand, she claimed she saw this man at 20 till eight, so 7.40. That would be around the time that the other barber heard the second set of explosions. But on cross-examination, the defense pointed out that in her deposition, she had stated the time in much broader terms. She, when deposed, she said she heard, when deposed, she stated she saw this man between 7 and 8. And in her sworn statement to Dawn Fry, she said the time was between 8 and 8.30. And then, while on the witness stand, she claimed that the variance in her times was because she was nervous. But she is so inconsistent with her times that I think her account of the time can't be trusted. And I'm not saying throughout her testimony. I'm just saying throughout her times. I am also suspicious that her timeline has evolved over time to fit the state's theory of the case. She started with seeing this man between 8 and 8.30, but ended up with 7.40 as a precise time. That's weird. Whose memory gets clearer as time passes? Not most people. But keep in mind, she only said she saw a white guy in the store sometime between 7 and 8.30, and she didn't identify the man in the store as Tommy. Barbara saw a tall, thin white man with a crew-cut hairstyle. He was wearing a dark jacket, and he was inside the store behind the front glass doors. She couldn't be positive who this man was, but she thought it could be Tommy, who she knew. She described the man as wearing a dark jacket, and it's important to note that Tommy was not wearing a dark jacket that night, and I don't believe that a dark jacket was recovered from the crime scene. Barbara Woodward was shopping in the plaza near the furniture store that night. She noticed the furniture store because it was completely dark inside. And I noted earlier that Tommy had told um, Curtis Dunaway to turn off the four overhead lights that were typically kept on at the store at night, but that would not have made the store completely dark as there were all these lamps that were left on in the main part of the store and a big illuminated wreath. And it's important to note when the police arrived at the scene, the breaker had been turned off and the store was completely dark. So when Barbara sees the store completely dark, had the outside breaker already been thrown? That's gonna be that's an important part of the timeline that I'll explain later, but I have, I'm very concerned about when the power actually went out and when that clock actually stopped at the store because a lot of stuff's being set around the clock and I don't know if we can put as much, um, oh, I don't know, as much weight on that time is, is what some people tend to do. You know, they try to Agatha Christie it a little bit and that's, it doesn't always work in real life. Another thing was Barbara noticed 
when she was over looking at the furniture store, there were two cars parked in the store's small front parking lot. A green car, and that would be Tommy's in-laws car. They had a green car, so most likely it was them. And there was also a small dark colored car. But when she testifies, she walks back this statement. Okay, but here we are. We're not that far into the trial. It's about a week. And this was the most damaging testimony so far for Tommy. And in all honesty, it really isn't that bad. But everything up till you have Barbara Woodward, nothing is implicating Tommy in this necessarily. And that's a whole week of trial before you have anybody that's really, that anybody's bringing anything around to the defendant, which is very unusual. Um, a lot of prosecutors like to open strong, get through, the, do some boring stuff in the middle and close strong. I mean, the prosecutors won in this case. So whatever they did was, I guess was correct. I mean, I think they cheated, but there seemed to open incredibly weak, but they pick up their momentum. Okay, so now the second week of testimony, now it begins with the FBI shoe print expert, Tom Delaney. And this is super weird. You're not going to hear about this happening a lot, folks, because Tom Delaney was actually a defense witness who would testify that the shoe prints around Perry Edwards' body were not made by Tommy's shoes. But he was going to testify out of order, which diminished the impact of his testimony. And I think it really may have just left the jury confused. I mean, I wonder if the jury even realized at the end of the day that this expert was a defense expert because he's buried in the middle of the prosecution's case in chief. And this disorder in witness testimony, I mean, to say it's uncommon, I think is minimizing it, but it was due to the FBI being used to test the forensics. This was the time that Egan, the prosecutor and the FBI had agreed upon to make Delaney available to testify. And keep in mind, these FBI experts are not subject to subpoena. So the defense can't just compel them to testify. And I wonder if the prosecution time arranged it so Delaney wouldn't be available when the defense was presenting its case in chief because this is out of order testimony just killed the momentum the defense was building. Delaney should have been a strong witness for the defense, but he wasn't. And it's just tragic. And also my theory that maybe this was something that, that the prosecutor Egan had planned. I kind of think that also because they have FB, the prosecution has FBI witnesses that they call on their own behalf during their case. And they testify after Delaney. Why, if he's supposed to be a defense witness, why would the agreed upon time for him to testify be earlier than the agreed upon time that was agreed for, for the prosecution's witnesses that came from the FBI? It reeks of setup and manipulation. And that's what you have to do to win when you don't have evidence of guilt. That's what you have to do to win when you're trying to convict an innocent person. You have to do sneaky and shady and underhanded shit to get the job done because it's a job that shouldn't be done. Now, Delaney's testimony about the shoe prints was really pretty straightforward. He testified that the bloody shoe prints around Perry Edwards' body had a border along the edge of the print, and Tommy's shoes didn't have a border. Simply put, Tommy's shoes did not make those shoe prints. And not even the state's, you know, super expert, Herbert McDonald. There was one print that Herb claimed was definitely made by the killer. According to the FBI, that wasn't Tommy's shoe print. It did not match. Delaney testified and was cross-examined. During the cross-examination, he was asked if he used blood when he did his test impressions. Delaney explained that he had used an ink pad. And I want you to know that that was an incredibly, that's common practice. Delaney was excused. 
and he left and he immediately hopped on a plane back to FBI headquarters in Washington. Now, after the trial, the defense lawyers learned that the prosecutor, Bob Egan, had met with Tom Delaney in private before Delaney testified. And the prosecutor had tried to get Delaney to alter his proposed testimony. And Delaney refused. Stand up guy. I like that about him. But I really wish he would have informed the defense about this meeting because I would have loved to have seen that play out in the courtroom and that be addressed. But they didn't find out after the trial. I mean, the stuff they find out after the trial, it just, it's heartbreak after heartbreak. Because the defense's FBI expert testified during the prosecution's case in chief, because the defense's FBI expert testified during the prosecution's case in chief, the prosecution was able to call a rebuttal witness directly after his testimony. And of course, this normally wouldn't be able to happen. Typically, the prosecution would have to wait till the defense rested their case to call a rebuttal witness. But because the FBI expert testified, you know, out of order, the prosecution immediately called to the stand their expert, old Herb McDonald. And he went over his credentials and background and how he worked for Corning and why the hell making ceramic or porcelain baking dishes made him a qualified blood splatter expert and uh, <laughs> foremost in his field. I, mean, I don't know how he made that correlation. I mean, this guy had amazing credentials back then. But nowadays we look back at blood splatter and we're like, oh no, it isn't what we thought. There's lots of value there. Don't get me wrong. There's value there, but it's not what we thought. So this guy is like, I'm the father of forensic science. He refers to himself as Sherlock Holmes. Oh my God, you made a junk science. I would say I could do that, but I don't know if I could because I feel like I question things too much as I'm doing them. I'd be like, is this really true? Whereas, um, I mean, I think uh, Herb just, you know, he got beaten his own bullshit. Is that a phrase? I don't think it is, but it should be one. But anyway, he goes over his credentials and background, and he was asked if he had conducted any tests on Tommy's shoes in relation to the shoe prints at the crime scene. Herb stated that he had, and the defense team almost fell the fuck over. They had no prior knowledge of any tests conducted by Herb relating to shoe prints, and no test results had ever been turned over to them during discovery related to Herb examining and comparing shoe prints. The defense requested a hearing. So the jury was excused and the defense made its argument that reciprocal discovery meant that they should have been giving the results of any tests conducted by Herb before the trial. But the prosecution, oh, those fuckers, they got super sleazy and said that there were no written results. So therefore, there was nothing to hand over. I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. I've said that before. When you have to lower yourself to these levels, you, it's a reason why you have to do this. It's because you don't have the evidence. And I'm so sick of people saying, we got the guy, we got the guy, but we don't have the evidence. If you don't have the evidence, think about it. Maybe you don't got the guy. All this, well, we had to do this because we knew it was him. If you don't have the evidence that shows it was him, how the hell do you know it was him? Who are you? Okay. Remember what I mentioned earlier that maybe the state did have Edward Williams' pants tested for gunshot residue and the results came back negative, but the testing was probably done under a verbal agreement so there'd be no written results to turn over to the defense during discovery? And maybe that explains why the state was in such a hurry to go to trial so the defense wouldn't have time to conduct all their own tests? Well, it's shit like this that makes me think that kind of stuff. Like, you start questioning people and their ethics and what they're willing to do, when they start to show you who they are as an unethical, sneaky, deceitful person. And that's what the prosecution, their colors have been shown. 
we know who they are. They will do anything to get the result that they want. And the result that they want is a conviction. It's not justice. It's a conviction. And that is a major problem. And I have to say, I don't like thinking like, oh, people are doing stuff that's sneaky and underhanded. I don't like thinking that because it means it just means these people, they should have realized that they didn't have a case against Tommy and dropped the charges. But instead, they proceeded along prosecuting an innocent man, hiding evidence, withholding evidence, conducting secret tests without telling the defense about test results. You know, so the defense could be blindsided in the courtroom. That's what the prosecution had to do to win this case. Underhanded tactics were used because they didn't have the evidence because they were prosecuting an innocent man. And the prosecutor, Egan, he doubled down on being an asshole by pointing out that the defense was Elsa still conducting tests of their own? Well, of course they are. You idiots charged Tommy prematurely, then forensics didn't support the charges, so you had delayed discovery to the damn last possible minute and argued against the continuances that the defense repeatedly requested. I mean, I will go forth to say they begged for and you fought them, and now you're going to criticize them if they still have tests that they haven't turned over they are being conducted? The defense needed more time. The state argued against that. Then they want to use that to their advantage, the fact that the defense is still conducting tests, and the judge allows it. Egan argued to the court that Hadley had called him just the night before about tests the defense was conducting and the results. Egan whined that the prosecution didn't have time to do their own investigation into these tests. Yeah, asshole, you don't have time because you rushed to trial. No one did this but you guys. The prosecution did this. The state was the one that had to charge Tommy immediately without having any forensics to back it up. And now the defense is calling you and going over tests and not just springing on you in court like the state's trying to do with Herb McDonald, there's a difference. He actually cites that the defense is calling him and giving him test results. He cites as an example of why he should be allowed to withhold test results that were conducted before the trial started and spring them live on the defense in the courtroom with no prior knowledge. It's appalling. That man should be ashamed that those words are coming out of his mouth. But I think he's so full of himself that he doesn't know enough to be ashamed. And everyone will say, you always say, oh, I think Bob Egan was a good guy, a good prosecutor. I think bullshit. How could he be a good guy doing that to somebody when their life's on the line? You're going to hide test results because you don't want people to be prepared and know what they're going into? It's disgusting. I don't put much by someone like that. What wouldn't he do to win a case? But of course, the judge just didn't see it. The judge overruled the defense's objection, and he stumbled over his own words to do it. He knew that that objection should have been sustained. These tests the defense never had any knowledge of should never have been admitted into evidence, and the judge knew that. But he wanted them in. He just didn't know how to word it without sounding like a biased moron. But don't worry, he sure as shit didn't let that stop him. These tests were admitted into evidence, even though the defense was never told about the tests and their results before trial. It was a blatant reciprocal discovery violation that went completely unpunished. The defense team seems like they were in a state of shock. I very seriously doubt that they had ever been faced with such a blatant violation of the rules of discovery in their entire legal careers. In this moment, the defense makes a mistake. The judge offers them time to interview Herb and take a look over all the prints outside of the jury's presence. The defense is given half of an hour to review this new evidence and talk to Herb, and the defense agrees to this arrangement. 
And of course, a half hour is not long enough. And the defense's FBI shoe print expert, Delaney, he's already on a plane and will not be available to rebut Herb's testimony. He's gone. The prosecution has gotten exactly what they wanted. Later that night, the defense team realizes the mistake they made by agreeing to the extra half hour to review the prints and talk to Herb because the defense may have lost the ability to raise the issue on appeal. And really, it's what happened. It does affect the appeal. The half hour wasn't sufficient for the defense. The defense renewed their objection at the end of the half hour, objecting to the bloody shoe print evidence that Herb McDonald had analyzed himself. And they're objecting on the grounds of surprise and prejudice. But their objection was once again overruled. After the hearing, Herb McDonald resumes his testimony. And he stated on May 12th, immediately before he was deposed by the defense. This is the day he's in town. He's only in town one day to be deposed by the defense. Before he will meet with the defense, Herb examined Tommy's shoes and did ink impressions. But these impressions did not constitute testing in Herb's opinion. Because during his deposition, he's asked about all the tests he's conducted on the evidence. And he never mentions taking those ink impressions, even though he had just done it minutes before the deposition started. In fact, the deposition was delayed so he could make those prints. Not mentioning when you're asked about tests you conducted, the fact that you just started a shoe print test, you know, minutes ago, it seems like a little bit of a lie, doesn't it? Well, Herb finds a way around that. He says he omitted the shoe print impression information because he had not yet compared the impressions that he had made to the photographs from the crime scene. In Herb's book, because the comparisons had not been made, no testing had been done on shoe prints at the time of the deposition. He's splitting hairs. He's splitting hairs and mincing words. And what depends what you mean by is. It's shit like that. But at least then it wasn't something like someone's life was on the line like it is here. I'm just sorry. I dislike these people so much. Even if they truly thought Tommy was guilty. And I don't know how they would have thought that. But even if they did, it's not okay to use tactics like this to convict anybody. Even the guilty. A jury decides who the guilty is, not the police, not the prosecutor, not expert witnesses, and not the judge. You just can't justify shady tactics to yourselves by saying, well, it's okay, this guy's guilty anyway, because that's not your decision to make. That's a jury's decision. Leave it to them. Give them the facts. Don't hide shit from people just so you can try to win. Okay. Back to Herb. So after he is deposed, Herb takes the ink shoe impressions he made from Tommy's shoes and compared them to the photographs of the shoe prints from the crime scene. But apparently, he couldn't reach a conclusion that satisfied him. You know, he couldn't say that they matched. So he keeps on testing because he's going to get a match. He's going to get a match because that's what he wants. That's not what the evidence is showing, but that's what his goal is. And that is not the role of an expert. That's the role of a hired gun that will do anything for a paycheck. And I think that's what this guy is. So, can't get a match. So, what does Herb do? Well, Herb can't get the results that he wants. He's not going to stop. So, he decides to make a second set of impressions using human blood instead of ink this time. You know, change the medium that you're using. Maybe you can find a match where there isn't a match if you keep retesting and changing the products that you're using for the testing. I mean, get that right there. He made two cents of impressions to get the match that he was looking for. But the prosecution never told the defense about these tests or their results before Herb's testimony. I'm surprised they even found out he made ink impressions before he made blood impressions. Because right there to me, it's saying, yeah, there's no match. You're just trying to find the match. But the defense, they realize that Herb and the prosecution, they are like boiling at this point. They just absolutely have to be. Because the prosecution and Herb had delayed Herb's 
availability to be deposed by the defense because he was making these shoe impressions when he was in town with the express purpose of being deposed by the defense. Herb's deposition was also cut short because Herb first was late because he was doing shoe impressions and rushed because he said he had to catch a plane. He couldn't stay very long. The defense wanted more time with Herb, but they were denied. I mean, how is this okay? Herb just to me seems like a higher gun willing to say anything he needs to say for a payday. I mean, how greedy and disgusting do you have to be that you would do this to another human being? But then again, he's a child diddler. So, I mean, where are the standards? So out of, I guess what I should say is on the grand scheme of things, what's the worst thing that Herb McDonald has done in his life? Is it lying and putting innocent people in jail? Or is it the weird child stuff he did? I'm going to say the child stuff, but the lying and putting people in jail, that's usually for most people. That would be the worst thing they've ever done in, in their lives. But um, Herb, he found a way to outdo himself there, didn't he? Anyway, Herb went on to testify that he agreed with Delaney, the man from the FBI, about the one shoe print not matching Tommy's shoes. But unlike Delaney, Herb found great similarities with an apparent individual characteristic shared by Herb's test print in blood and the shoe print at the crime scene. So now he's agreeing with Delaney that yes, this is not a match. And yes, he did have to do two sets of prints to get this, what he calls great similarities between Tommy's shoe print and a shoe print in blood by Perry Edwards' body that Herb thought was made by the killer. But the problem is, even if there are similarities, Delaney said that the shoe print contained a ridge around the edge of the, of the shoe. Tommy's shoe didn't have that ridge. So even if there are other similarities, even if there's some striations and things that match up in other spots, you have one spot there on the shoe. The whole border of the shoe print doesn't match Tommy's shoe. So I don't care if the rest of it's all polka dotted like the bottom of Tommy's shoe or if it's all stripey or whatever. It doesn't matter because there's something that eliminates that print. I'm so bothered by this in so many ways. And I just, oh my God, I hope I can find the other people out there in the world that this stuff right here just doesn't sit well with them. The dramatic impact of the defense's star FBI witness had been diminished and it was just downhill for the defense from this point. I mean, the defense didn't even cross-examine Herb about his shoe print testimony, which just goes to show that they were completely blindsided and unprepared on that topic, which is understandable. They had just found out about it during Herb's direct testimony. But I do think there is a problem that they didn't, even blindsided, I think they should have been able to address the issue of the ridge around the edge of the shoe. Even in a state of shock, I think the professionals should be able to say, make the comparison that Delaney made, know what he was talking about, and then make the comparisons during cross-examination to what Herb was talking about. I understand why they would be hesitant to do that because they had not been able to review this in any way before, but I don't think it's something that you can let go unaddressed. And um, I mean, I, I would guess I think that the defense team would say that today probably too. But then again, look at me. I'm 40 some years later saying these things after I know all everything that happened. So it's easy to second guess these people when you aren't the one that's just right there all of a sudden there's testimony that you had no idea or no knowledge of you know going on in the courtroom beforehand so I mean it's easy to critique you know everybody wants to be a critic and I, I don't like to come down hard on the defense I just feel like we need to figure out we know what the prosecution and what the investigators did that was wrong that ended up Tommy an innocent man being in jail but we also need to acknowledge when the people that tried to help him maybe didn't quite make all the correct decisions and it's completely different than what the prosecution did and it's completely different different than what the investigators did because I think what they did was with malice and what the defense did was just mistakes. Two different worlds right there. 
Okay, now due to some deceitful tactics on the part of the state, you know, hiding these tests conducted by Herb, the impact of the defense's FBI expert, you know, just completely diminished. Delaney's testimony did not have the value in the jury's eyes that it should have. Even though Herb had to create two sets of impressions of Tommy's shoes to come up with not a match, but some great similarities between one of the shoe prints and Tommy's shoes, it was still an absolutely terrible blow to the defense. But we aren't done yet with Herb. Herb testified that a week before his testimony, he examined Charlie May's clothes. And this would have been around the time that the trial started, which is ridiculous. Why is the trial underway while both prosecution and the defense are still conducting these tests? It's insanity. I can't keep saying that enough. This trial should have been delayed. Tests weren't done. Wait till the test results come all come back in, then go to trial. Let everybody be prepared. But of course, that's not what the prosecution most likely wanted. If the prosecution hadn't even finished their own testing, why the hell didn't they agree to the defense's repeated requests for a continuance? Because they don't want all these results coming in. Because every time a result comes in, almost every time, no, I'm going to say just... Yeah, just about every time. The results are not in the prosecution's favor. At that point, oh, sure, shit, I probably wouldn't want any more results coming in either. But also, I'm a good person, so I would have dropped charges against Tommy. I wouldn't have continued pursuing the case once I found out the forensics didn't support his guilt. You know, why continue? It's morally wrong. Okay, now during this examination of Charlie's clothes, Herb found fine blood splatters on the inside of Charlie's undershorts. See, Herb had determined that Charlie May's pants had been pulled down during the attack, including his underwear. Herb believed that Charlie's underwear were pulled down and around his knees with the inside out over the top of his pulled down pants. So it's like both things were pulled down at one time and it ends up the inside of the underwear is what's on top. Now let that sink in. Okay, Herb is actually testifying that he believes that the victim's pants and underwear were completely pulled down during the attack, meaning Charlie's genitals. I mean, he's completely exposed while he's being beaten to death. And to me, gosh darn it, it just, this makes the prosecution just look so desperate to make this look like a homosexual attack. The blood spatter on the inside of Charlie's undershorts led McDonald to conclude that Charlie was beaten to death by a killer who straddled the man on the ground while his pants and underwear were around his knees. But if he was straddling him as he beat him to death, why would blood spray be getting on the underside of his shorts if the man's straddling him sitting on top of him wouldn't the killer be blocking the blood spray from going to the undershorts that's what i don't quite understand they really want charlie's May's pants to be down for some reason um i think it speaks more to the investigators than it does to the criminal because i don't think any of that happened because it doesn't you know make any sense especially when you consider that the first investigators on the scene people that found Charlie May's body, they both testified that his pants were up when they found him. So now what are we saying? The killer pulled his pants and underwear down, straddled over top of him to beat him to death. He still manages to get blood spray on the inside of his undershorts, but then the killer pulls the undershorts and pants back up before the first responders arrive at the scene. Now the first responders arrive and they see Charlie there with his pants up, but at some point his pants are pulled back down and it couldn't be by the killer at this point because he's They've clearly left. So there's a lot of up and down to Charlie May's pants, according to the state's case. And um, I've just never heard of such a thing before. I honestly, I, I just can't figure it out because this case, there's so many things about it that are truly confusing to me. And this isn't something that's truly confusing to me because I just throw that right out of my mind because I think, I don't think that all happened. I just don't think that all happened. I, 
I think what happened was they came up with the idea that Tommy was gay. It was fed to them by somebody. And they decided to do that to Charlie May's pants at the crime scene to give the scene a homosexual aspect to it. I just want to know why Detective Fry and Herb McDonald, are they truly so incredibly homophobic that they actually think it is acceptable to claim that it was just gay frustration that caused this behavior of pulling down a man's pants and undershorts while beating him to death? Because that is bizarre beyond words. And I think it just shows the low view they have of homosexual people that they keep he's a homosexual that's that's why he did this well homosexuals don't normally do this okay so that's something i mean i know people's view of homosexuals has changed since the 70s but still it's rubbed me wrong my entire life that people think somebody has a gender preference or makes them more inclined to be deviant in some way it doesn't make them a murderer I see so much bias from the time here. And then I also see bias that you'd expect from the time not appearing. Like there's a lot of bias against homosexuality, but there's a lot of trustworthiness of statements that don't make sense made by black people that I would have thought the Deep South would have questioned much more. Like Edward Williams' account of that night. I wouldn't have thought, I mean, he says so many crazy things. I wouldn't have thought his story had been bought so easily just based on the time period and where he was in the Deep South. I, I mean, I'm shocked by that, but I'm also... I guess less shocked that the way they think that um, if they think Tommy's gay, then he'll do anything that's bizarre, including some type of sexual thing where he beats men to death naked. I mean, I just don't get it. Now, recall those crime scene photos where Charlie's pants are pulled up. His undershorts are up. He's not actually exposed. And keep in mind, two police officers, remember Jimmy Yon and Chief Thompson, the first two officers on this crime scene, they both find Charlie's body and both testify that Charlie's pants were not pulled down when they first found him. The prosecution now had testimony that, that Charlie May's pants and underwear were completely down during the attack. On cross-examination, the defense is able to get Herb to admit that Charlie could have been wearing his undershorts inside out and that maybe they weren't pulled down at all. This would still explain the blood spatter without Charlie's underwear being pulled down to his knees. Now, on appeal, this issue of undershorts being pulled down will arise again. It's brought up by Prosecutor Jeff Dashton. That piece of shit that couldn't get Casey Anthony into prison. Uh, oh, God, that man's terrible. Anyway, he's going to bring this up again, and it's going to be even more disgusting when it's implied that a sexual act was performed on Charlie Mays' corpse. We'll get to that later. Yeah, we'll get to that later. I don't really want to because it's so disturbing that people would feel confident just pulling stuff right out of their butt um, and just making wild allegations that don't have nothing behind them. Okay, so now Herb had no explanation for the blood spatter on the back of Tommy's shirt. And now this is something that comes up now frequently that people use to say it shows Tommy is guilty because people are claiming it's cast off from when he was killing Charlie Mays. And here's the thing is I don't understand why that would make him guilty. First off, Tommy admits in his story that he got into a violent struggle with a few men I think it was three is what he's thinking in his story. And one of them was Charlie Mays. He admits that. So yeah, he could hit Charlie Mays and have cast off. I mean, he says he threw the gun at him and he's hitting him. So yeah, he could have Charlie Mays' blood on the, his back. And I don't think that's, you know, a problem at all. Because I think it corresponds to what Tommy himself said. But they know that these were not transfer stains. 
from such like being on the floor or anything that are on the back of Tommy's shirt. And Herb himself admits on the witness stand that the spatter could have come from Tommy being in close to someone else as they were being beaten. Now DNA tests now show us that that is Charlie Mays' blood, but even on the witness stand, Herb McDonald saying, yes, Tommy could have been laying unconscious on the floor near where Charlie was being beaten and that blood could have come on to hit back of Tommy's shirt that way. It doesn't mean that Tommy was the one that beat him to death. It just means that he was in some proximity to somebody, to Charlie, because it's Charlie's blood when he was being beaten. Now, keep in mind that the defense believes that Charlie Mays was beaten and killed by his co-conspirators after Tommy was shot and unconscious laying on the floor. And now we just have the prosecution's main expert admitting that this is definitely a possibility. Then the defense asked Herb about Eunice's coat. Now, Eunice's coat had blood on the inside collar of her coat, not on the outside where you'd be able to see it. It'd be open. You have to look in the inside of the collar. There's no way that the blood could have gotten there from her own gunshot wound. Uh, if you look at crime scene pictures, she's shot in the head and all the blood goes upwards on the floor. Like, there's no way that this blood came from Eunice's wound to the inside of her coat. Let me just put it that way. And um, the prosecution agrees with that. Herb also agreed that Eunice's coat would have been open when the blood got on the inside of her coat, most likely. But Eunice was found with her coat completely buttoned up and with her hand in the pocket. So it looks like even Herb here is admitting that her position may have been staged or at least altered after she was shot. And that's the end of old Herb's testimony right there. But I think that's important because the prosecution always wants to say that Eunice had to be killed by somebody she knew because of her relaxed position on the floor. She just laying backward, coat all buttoned up, hand in her pocket, which I don't know why she has to be shot by somebody she didn't know because you're saying she wasn't surprised, but the poor woman was shot in the back of the head. I really, truly don't think she saw this, that coming right then is a good chance to me. She didn't see it coming or she was running to flee and someone shot her in the back of the head. But I don't think it's like, oh, there's my husband. I love him. I'm not surprised that he's shooting me. Wouldn't you still be surprised if your husband pulled a gun on you? You wouldn't be like, I mean, I just don't know. Like, I, I don't see the difference. I feel like they, people make a lot of decisions based on the person had to know their killer because something looks like this, or they didn't know their killer because of something looks like this. But I think a stranger pulls a gun on you, your husband pulls a gun on you. Either way, you're going to be in a surprise state. But bigger picture here too is she's shot in the back of the head. So she might not have known that somebody was going to be shooting her. She might not have been surprised at all. But also, I think it's important to note she's shot in the back of the head and she doesn't fall forward. She falls backward and her hands in her pocket. I think she was moved. I don't know what the purpose of that would be, but I'll tell you this, it caused confusion. Just like I think there's some extra shots, you know, shot into the walls, you know, shot around the scene, just caused confusion about how things, you know, played out that night because that's where we are now is it's very hard to get things clear. And I think that was, you know, a goal of the killers. And I think that someone there had some brains that knew how to do this stuff. So after Herb's done testifying, the prosecution then calls on Thomas Hale to testify. And he testified that he saw Tommy driving with Eunice at 7.05 at the intersection of Dillard. And that's the street where the um, furniture store is located. This is what I'm telling you. Stuff started going downhill for the defense. Now, this is some bad um, testimony against Tommy because this is the only testimony in the entire trial that will place Tommy with Eunice on the way to the store or at the store. Now, Hale was confronted with the fact that he had identified Tommy's old car as the car he saw Tommy and Eunice in that night. Now, not only was Tommy driving Curtis Dunaway's car that night, but the car that Thomas Hale identified as the car that Tommy had been driving on Christmas Eve had been sold by the Ziegler's three months before the murders. 
And I think people can misidentify a car. I get that. But I think it's important that that's the car that Thomas Hale would have tied to the Zigglers from seeing them previously. So he identifies the car that he thinks he knows that they own. But that wasn't the car that they were in. They were in a car that was a different color. And to me, that's so important because it just goes to show that's a lie. If he had misidentified and it was just a wrong car, I'd be okay with it. But I have a problem with he identified a car that he would have known that the Zigglers had typically been known to drive. He just didn't realize that they'd bought a new car in the last three months. Now, I have to admit, at this point, things are not looking good for Tommy. Um, but Thomas Hale is the only witness that the state has that supports their theory that Tommy drove Eunice to the store that night. And Tommy completely denies that. Now, the next prosecution witness was Maddie Mays. This is Charlie Mays' wife. And she testified that Charlie left the house between 6.30 and 6.45 on Christmas Eve. Maddie also testified that Charlie had won a bet on a highlight match in the amount of $420 to $430 on December 22nd. This story about Charlie hitting it big, you know, on a highlight bet, this was an attempt to explain the little over $400 that was found in Charlie May's pocket at the time of his death, but it really doesn't help explain the furniture store receipts that were stuck in his pocket along with the $400. Anyway, the defense was able to obtain the receipts of all the establishments that permitted gambling on these highlight matches. Well, these receipts showed that Charlie could not have won this $420 to $430 shortly before his murder because no one won that amount gambling on highlight in that area in the weeks before Christmas, which makes sense. He had to, Charlie had to get a loan from his boss the day he died. Why would he need a loan from his boss if he was flush with cash from gambling winnings? Also, the linoleum that he bought that day was on credit. This too, I think, shows that he didn't have what would be that $400 in his pocket would be $2,200 in today's money. So even if he had one on Highlight two days ago, why would he still be carrying all of his winnings around with him? To me, seems weird. If I won $2,200 at a casino, I wouldn't keep that in my purse for weeks to come. I'd put that away for safekeeping. So I, I just think you can try to make up lies and try to make up stories about how this guy had money, but it's pretty clear he didn't. He's getting loans from people the day he's killed. He doesn't have $2,200 in his wallet. What would be the point of getting a loan? You don't need one. I think that it's very likely that the money found on Charlie's body was stolen from the Ziegler Furniture Store. Or at the very least, it was placed in his pocket to make it look like a robbery. Perhaps by the co-conspirators. They just shoved that in there, pin it on Charlie. So if the, if the police don't end up th blaming Tommy for this, the police could still blame Charlie for it being a robbery. And, you know, they're off the hook either way. Win-win for them. Is it just me or does anyone else think that the fact that Charlie Mays bet on High Lie is an indication of just of how serious his gambling problem was? I mean, I mean, who the hell bets on high lie? I've never heard of such a thing. I mean, apparently it's more popular in Florida, but I still think it's weird and I gamble. I mean, who the hell even plays high lie? Well, I know who doesn't, people that are left-handed. Oh, you know what I just realized? When I said that Maddie Mays may not have been truthful when she testified that Charlie had won $420 to $430 um, gambling on High Lie, and I said she wasn't being truthful, maybe he had told her that he had won that amount of money because he knew he was going to be coming into money for doing the robbery at the Ziegler store. And if he tells her he won on High Lie, then she won't be asking where the money came from. So maybe she was what she thought was she was telling the truth, but really she was testifying to something somebody had told her that was an actual, actually a lie. Or, this is the other thing I thought, if he did win gambling on Highlight and they couldn't find where someone had won 420 to $430 at any of the gambling establishments that let you place bets on Highlight, maybe he had won 
a series of smaller wins that totaled that amount. So that also could happen. But I just still, at the heart of it, I don't think somebody that had basically what would today be $2,200 in their pocket would be taking a loan out from their boss that same day and would also be buying everything on credit and be behind on their payments because he was behind on his payments to his to the Ziegler's on his uh, account he had there. So to me, I don't think that Maddie was necessarily lying when she said that Charlie had won. I think she might have been repeating something that wasn't true just because I just don't see any evidence there that Charlie had that amount of money. And I know we got through some of the prosecution's case today, but in our next episode, yep, I'm leaving you on this note. Our next episode, we're going to continue on and finish up with the prosecution side of the case.